0: I don't know if you can use any of that. I I went on a rant about kimonos. I'm sorry.
1: <laughs>
0: like, <laughs> I mean, we can keep it in. I don't care. As long as we're like, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> if we have like a track thing, we'll have a segment called Kara Yells About Kimonos.
1: Welcome back to Cathedral Conversations About Race. My name is Michael. I'm here with Cara. And today, we are going to talk about ourselves. If you listen to episode one, we talked about how this podcast came about, the reasons for its conception, the way we did it, the way we developed it. And today, we're going to go into a little bit of detail about who the people behind it are. And I think that's a little bit important because you're probably going to hear our voices on every episode. I'd say you definitely will hear our voices on every episode as we talk to the BIPOC people of St. Mark's about their experiences being a BIPOC person at the cathedral. And then when we have conversations with our clergy to help provide a little bit of context behind who these voices are, but then also how and why we came to this place and time where we said, we need to do something like this. Kara and I thought, why not have a special dedicated episode about us?
0: We'll talk about us then. (laughs) Yes, thank you. So that we'll talk
1: about us. And the interesting thing is there will be parts of each other's stories that we don't really know. And in fact, we have made it a point not to talk about some of that stuff, until we sat down and recorded this together, socially distanced, uh, because we just kind of wanted to experience it a little bit first time um, and not for this to be a really tightly scripted uh, exchange where we pretend to be surprised about some of the interesting parts of our journeys. So with that, Kara, thank you so much for, obviously, thank you so much for agreeing to this, but thank you so much for being willing to do the work to make this possible. I mean, this is hard work. It 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 take it took a lot of time for us to get to this point. It's not always easy to do, but the sheer importance of being here, of having these conversations and of making them part of the work of St. Mark's is not something anybody could have done solo. So thank you for being a part of this.
0: Well, once again, right back, right back at you with that. And I, this definitely would not have taken off without your support and know-how and, you know, sanity that I'm slowly regaining after last year. <laughs> so, and then at this point, I just talk about myself, right?
1: Yeah. And okay. I, will, I will leave the ball in your court entirely, how you want to do that. I mean, um, as, as far back as you want to take that story or as current oh, as you want to make it, okay. who is Kara Peterson?
0: So I'm Kara Peterson. Um, Many of you listeners probably know who I am, but if you don't, um, I'm a parishioner at St. Mark's. I sing in the Cathedral Choir when it's safe to do so, and I've been singing in the quartets uh, over the past year uh, since the building closed for the coronavirus pandemic. I've been going to St. Mark's for about 15 years, and even with a a four-year break for my undergraduate, I moved back to Seattle from New Jersey and went back there again. Um, but before I even went to St. Mark's actually, I grew up in a half non-religious and half Buddhist household. Um, <laughs> my, uh, my mom and her side of the family are all Japanese American. Um, my great grandparents emigrated to Hawaii from Okinawa to work in the sugarcane plantations there um, in the first 20-ish years of the, the 20th century and my dad is from upstate new york and gosh that's a strange rabbit hole right there but in his town um the reverend janet campbell grew up in that town and uh maria coldwell our our dear pal also grew up really close to the town where my dad grew up and like it's they're they're all within five ten miles of each other and so
1: it sounds like one way or another you and maria were always going to be friends
0: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I I think so. It only took, you know, thousands of years in choir, but at (laughs) at any rate, (laughs) uh, this all ended up being a strange upbringing because my dad actually being, even being the white parent is actually also the Buddhist parent. Um, (laughs) uh, At the end of graduate school, or at the end of undergraduate, from what I can surmise, from what he's told me, he wanted to study like some sort of monastic buddhist type practice and so he went off to one of the like tibetan monasteries in nova scotia it sounds weird but there's actually a big <laughs> enclave there and in, in colorado nova yeah nova scotia yeah i think it's called oh i forget. but at any rate um after that he converted and he went and studied Chinese and got his Chinese literature graduate degree because he was really into poetry and all, and still is. Um, He's, I'm happy to report that my dad is still alive and living in Ballard with my mom and their dog, Logan. Um, (laughs) And my mom grew up in a, well, it's, it's tough. She grew up in a really small town on the big island of Hawaii, which the religious communities that are there, and that even were there when when she was born and stuff, are all kind of mission based still. Um, so she and her family went to a kind of not non non not 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 non denominational, but one of those sort of congregational Protestant semi-non-denominational right. yeah. that was probably the only one within 50 miles at the time or whatever. Um, and so when she moved to the mainland for, for college and never moved back, uh, she just sort of stopped being religious. But uh, growing up, I was really into music, which is probably not something that's too surprising to hear, but uh, I played piano and I wanted to play organ. And so my dad brought me to saint mark's because it was the biggest organ he could think of um, <laughs> it is not the biggest organ in the city but it is the best Who there it's the biggest organ it. in the city uh probably saint james um either that yeah probably say, like within the city limits but but yeah no that that's a huge instrument because it's actually two it's it's a weird story but At any rate, (laughs) but we
1: test. I would like that to be on record.
0: Yes, yeah, that's fine. I mean, it (laughs) wouldn't be a little Kara episode without some Oregon nerd stuff. But, um, (laughs) and I'm sure any of of, of the Oregon nerds listening to this will will correct me handily. Fear not. Uh,
1: (laughs) I I can see the angry comments rolling in already.
0: (laughs) You'd be surprised. (laughs) No, no, no. Um, At any rate, after that, I started coming to st mark's on a regular basis originally because i wanted to play the fun trap and i felt like you know and it was kind of fun to go to church because i never did that growing up because um, again my dad would go do sitting meditation on sunday mornings and my mom would do the new york times crossword puzzle
1: so st and- mark's was really your first church experience
0: per se yeah oh. Yeah, more or less, yeah. My mom's mom was really, 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 like, conservative in her Christianity, but not much else. But it was strange. So my grandmother would try to, you know, when we would go visit her when she was still alive, she would take us to her church meetings. And it was not a church experience for me, to put it nicely. (laughs) But other than that, yes, St. Mark's really was definitely my first liturgical experience. Then.
1: Okay.
0: Because before then, the only other like, Episcopal Catholic type liturgy I'd ever gone to was a a wedding at St. Joseph's on Aloha on 19th, and I had the flu, so I don't actually remember most of it because I was sleeping in my mom's lap for a lot of that wedding. Um, but yeah, once I came into St. Mark's and started learning and started meeting people and and i mean frankly is what i still perceive is what christianity really can grow to be if you nurture it correctly is what i have found in saint mark's and i still do Mm. um and it's it's kept me coming back all these years and (laughs) as well as the organ of course you you
1: remember when this was that you're seeing the organ for the first time that you're just finding out what saint mark's is or or christianity is when that was
0: it has to have been when i was around nine or ten so um in case you all want to know my bodily age that would be around 1990 or or 2000 or so was when my dad actually started taking me to christmas eve midnight mass
1: I wasn't even in America at that time. We'll get to that later, but that's that's my perspective. I was literally living on the other side of the world when you were discovering St. Mark's.
0: Yeah, no, and it was nice. And that's why, I mean, Christmas Eve is, has remained one of my absolute favorite liturgies, even though, you know, fr- from our perspective, having gone, like we go to church regularly, normally, whatever that means in 2021. But, you know, Christmas Eve, like liturgically, is basically exactly the same, but blown up to accommodate 1200 people instead of 200 or 250. And, and so like liturgically, it's not all that interesting. The music is fun, and it, but it's often stuff that the choir can kind of pull together quickly because it's a lot of music that we have to pull together and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's still, it's still my first Connection to St. Mark's. And so it has a very near and dear place in my heart.
1: Um, really quickly, I did mention in my last episode, sorry, in our
0: last
1: It's really quickly. I do remember <laughs> in our last episode, I mentioned I came to St. Mark's in November 2015. And obviously, Christmas was just a month later. And I think I just came for one service as opposed to now where I live at the cathedral on Christmas Eve, but it was also just seeing the crowd, seeing the Christmas trees and the lights and hearing the music that I think it really, really connected with me. I mean, there were little moments that led to that point, but I think like in a way very similar to you being there for Christmas Eve was very powerful.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's nice. Oh, gosh. I've talked enough about myself so far. <laughs> <laughs> now it's time to hear more about you, Michael. We'll just let's see background. I, I don't, I, I literally don't know how you want me to lead into that. I, what? It's, I don't want it to be like, where do you come from? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, we don't, we want to make sure we, I want to make sure I frame it in a not too America-centric way.
1: Um, Which, ironically, is one of the things this whole podcast is about. And also, ironically, I've had so many uh, people ask me when they're going to hear me talk about myself on a podcast episode. And I've never really known what to say because (laughs) the regular About uh, Cathedral Conversations podcast is not really about me. It's just about the other people there. And I'm more than happy to do it that way. But obviously, when the idea came up, hey, let's do a podcast about the people of color at the cathedral, the next shoe dropped, I am one of those mythical people of color at the cathedral. And this would probably be a good opportunity to talk about myself a little too. As I said, I was not even in the United States when, Kara you started coming to St. Mark's for the first time. I was in Dubai at the time, which is where I was born. Uh, I was born there in 1983. I wound up there because that was obviously where my family was at the time. My family is originally from Sri Lanka. At that time, in the 70s and the 80s, and I believe to an extent even now, it was the thing to do for people living in south asia in the indian subcontinent so countries like sri lanka india pakistan bangladesh etc it was the thing for people there to leave those countries and then to go to the middle east uh, for office jobs white collar jobs blue collar jobs that kind of thing Uh, which is why up until at least the 2000s and i imagine even today the 2020s you could go to those countries and you will see a lot of people from the Indian subcontinent. You will see more people from the Indian subcontinent and other countries like the Philippines, more so than you will the local Arabs who are native to those respective areas. And that was how my dad wound up in Dubai in 1980 or 1981, I think. He and my mom got married in Sri Lanka. They had my sister there in uh the mid 70s and then about five years later he went to dubai to get to start the job get settled etc and then sponsor my mom and my sister to go over and live in dubai with him which they did in 81 82 ish and that's where i was born in 1983 and um dubai was for the longest uh, no not for the longest time but for a significant part of its uh pre-independence history, that region got independence in 1972, but it was for the longest time a British colony, as was Sri Lanka, not coincidentally. And so that was still quite a strong British influence in both parts, uh, certainly Dubai, Sri Lanka less so, but still there, which was where a lot of the religious influence came in as well. So back in Sri Lanka, um, my mom's side of the family were and it, are still catholic uh, my dad's side of the family was and still is uh, anglican so my earliest church experiences were sorry uh, my earliest church memories i should say are of being in the catholic church in dubai it was saint mary's uh catholic church and i went to saint mary's catholic high school the uh adjoining school there at some point I think in my teens, I forget when, and I forget the exact reasons why, we left that Catholic church and we went to Holy Trinity Anglican Church, which was literally next door. Um, there was a decently good amount of religious freedom in Dubai, in the United Arab Emirates, that whole country. Um, there were limitations, obviously, but the uh, the ruling government said that even though this is a Muslim country uh, and Muslim is the, uh, excuse me, Islam is the state religion, uh, Christians were allowed to practice without uh, fear of persecution or oppression, as long as they followed certain guidelines. And I think, to the best of my knowledge, there were never any clashes between church authorities there and government authorities. People just, it was the way they got along. And I think the fact that there were so many people from different, uh, certainly different asian countries but just all around the world it kind of helped people get along a little bit better even if topics of race of colonization of even if topics of race or colonization were never really brought up we i think everybody there realized nobody is native to that land we really don't have anything to fight for and we're kind of all in the same boat together so let's all just get along all that to say that's why the switch from the Roman Catholic Church to the Anglican Church there was, I don't want to say easy, but I mean, it, it was fairly easy. There was, no, uh, there was no real drama behind it. Uh, but I was a little bit older then, so I have slightly better memories of it. And of course, it, it, it's an Anglican Church. I think it's part of the uh, Episcopal Diocese of Jerusalem. I do remember the liturgy as we understand it now, so much of it being very, very deeply similar uh, in Holy Trinity Church, and if I turn my memory back even further, uh, St Mary's Catholic Church. But obviously, being a teenager, I never really, never really understood it. I mean, church for me was important in the sense that it was something my parents wanted to do. My parents are and were and still are very devoted churchgoers. Uh, so it, I knew it was important for them. I did it because I had a lot of friends in the youth group. And it was it was nice to be a part of a community like that. But obviously, when you're 15 or 16, the intellectual concept of being a part of a church or following organized religion is, shall we stay still in development? So I didn't look at it too deeply. But it was nice to be a part of that. And then I lived in Dubai until 2003, which was when I moved to the U.S., because something that 99.9% of all the kids uh, who grew up in Dubai did was leave and seek out their fame and fortune elsewhere. And there were a couple of reasons for that. One was a government law in the United Arab Emirates saying that for male children, once male children turned 18, they could no longer remain on their parents' visa. They either had to get a job, uh, which would sponsor them for a visa or leave the country. This was not extended. This rule was not extended to female children who turned eighteen. That might have changed. I'm not so sure. I mean, this the law I'm telling you uh, was in effect twenty something years ago. It might have changed. It might not have. But uh, there were sisters of my friends, for example, who could continue to stay in Dubai on their parents' visas, specifically their father's visas, well after the age of eighteen. But the boys, such as myself, either had to get a job or go elsewhere. And for most of the boys there, upon turning 18, the idea was they would go somewhere to the West. A few did return back to their home countries. Most of them were Indians, so they went back to India. I don't really know of anybody, any of the Sri Lankans who went back to Sri Lanka. The idea was, um, if you're going to seek out your fame and fortune, there's a pretty good chance it will happen more so in a western country than it will in india or wherever their country of origin was so for that reason that's why i have a lot of friends in canada i have a lot of friends in the united kingdom Uh, one of my best friends from childhood lives in australia and of course i have friends all over the united states for that reason and something that kara and i have mentioned a few times which will come up in this episode is the fact that In the US, having a name like Michael, or I imagine having a name like Kara, helps a lot. No matter what I have to do, I can easily introduce myself as Michael Pereira, and people will immediately recognize my first name, and they will immediately know what my last name is. Uh, And I say that because in doing the work for this podcast, directly with the people at the cathedral, or just in the research to put it together, uh, the privilege of having one of the most common names in the Anglo-Saxon world cannot be overstated, I think. It has opened up a lot of doors. It's made certain parts of life very easy. Um, And especially coming here to the U.S. in 2003, I had visited the U.S. with family before, but that that arrival in 2003 was the first time I was pretty much by myself. I mean, my parents came to see me off, which is wonderful. But then once they left, I was 19 or something like that. Maybe just, yeah, yeah. I was 19 first time really, really living away from home and by away from home, I mean, across the Atlantic ocean. It was my first time in that part of Massachusetts where I was having a name like Michael really helped with making friends, with uh, getting help, whatever. It's important to say that because I know there are so many people, people I know personally and people who I don't know personally, who do not have the luxury of an easily understandable name, who try to make friends and who have to then change their name because nobody can pronounce it correctly, nobody can spell it correctly, or who have to shorten their name for that reason. And that's really a horrible thing for the name your family gave you to have to say, it doesn't work, so I need to change it. Is not a great feeling you know that's something we can unpack more but i'll just fast forward through a little bit more um when i was living in massachusetts i connected with a family there who really helped me out and they were well, still are catholics so we went to i i went with them to catholic mass every sunday it, it still felt rote in many ways it still felt like this was just a social obligation that you do on sunday mornings I moved to Linwood, Washington in 2005, uh, because I had finished, I had had finished my two years of undergraduate school there in Massachusetts. And it was not, it was not Boston, it was not the Boston metro area. It was a relatively small town on the western side of Massachusetts, uh, far, far away from the maddening crowd, um, which is beautiful and lovely. um, But Really didn't have much for me to do after I finished my bachelor's degree, and also I needed to find a job uh, to help me to help keep my student visa still active. So we may, my my parents knew someone who knew someone here in Limwood, Washington, who was opening a business through the grapevine. The rec- the offer was made uh hey there's somebody uh in seattle wherever seattle is who's opening up a business and of course i didn't know the difference between seattle and limwood um would you what do you think about moving all the way across the country uh at first i was a little hesitant did not know anything outside of that tiny little county in massachusetts but yeah i was completely out of out of other things to do and that was how i arrived in washington in 2005 uh, the family who helped me get set up in Washington, like I said, it was a family friend who got me set up with the jobs, and so they also helped me find a place to live. They um, they were members of First United Methodist Church in Edmonds. Uh, so we started, I mean, they went there, and they took me along one time, and it was actually really nice. I honestly don't remember too much about... The church itself or what a United Methodist service looks like. But that church, First United Methodist, was the first place I saw, I met a female rector. And she was, she was so good at deflecting the concerns that so many people had about seeing a woman in church leadership. That even though I don't remember much about First United Church in Edmonds, I remember so many things about that woman in particular. I moved to Ballard in 2008, and the woman from whom I was renting a room in Ballard uh, was going to Mars Hill Church. And that was my first time in a non-denominational church. Uh, I, don't, I forget if Mars Hill was Assemblies of God, per se, but it was obviously very different from First and Methodist, very different from the Catholic Church, very different from any church experience I'd ever had. And there was a part of it that was wonderful to see. It was connecting with uh, Seattleites in a way that churches just do not do, Seattle being a famously secular city. But obviously Mars Hill had many, many uh, problems, many of them behind the scenes, but there were some in front of the scenes that were too difficult for me to swallow. So I was, I, I stayed on Mars Hill for about five months, I think, before deciding I just couldn't do that anymore. And then Coincidentally, I moved again to Shoreline. When I lived in Shoreline, a lot of things uh, started to go wrong. Some of them were things related to my uh, the, visa sponsor- the visa sponsorship that I was trying. Some of them were related to finishing grad school. Uh, I was going to Seattle Pacific University and doing a gr- degree there. Some of them were uh, financially related, just basically three storms, three life-changing storms all happening at the same time when I finally crawled out of that, I was depressed and burned out and just completely mulch. Um, and during all those storms, I was not part of a church. I It just was not a priority. And coming out of that nightmare, I wanted to reconnect. I don't know if it was the need for personal salvation, but I just really wanted to have a community again. It was tough doing all this stuff by myself. And that was how i found myself in a in a neighborhood church in shoreline washington it was 2011 non-denominational that, they were assemblies of god and i have incredibly fond memories of being there they just completely welcomed me in with open arms and it was in a way it was nice to build up a religious experience from the ground up Uh, Just to say, a lot of stuff has happened, which I don't necessarily want to go into. Let's just wipe the slate clean and start all over again. And they were great for that. So I got really involved in there, helping out and volunteering in a lot of ways. Um, As time went on, I began to think it wasn't always going to be the place for me. I mean, I loved serving and worshiping with the people there. But it was not answering what my spiritual needs were growing into, especially around 2015 a lot of things in this country started to change not necessarily for the better and i would look at what other churches were doing and then i would look at what my church was doing and i didn't feel that and it's certainly not to say that every church has to do things whatever those things are but i started to question how much longer am i going to keep agreeing to disagree which is not something you want to think on a weekly sunday basis but in 2015, I had to move out of Shoreline anyway. So the timing worked out nicely. And then I moved to Seattle proper, just a little bit south of UW. And I decided to very intentionally look for churches that were more inclusive, more diverse, more progressive, forward moving, whatever you want to call it. Um, and I came up with, I think, a relatively short list. No, it was a very short list but i thought okay let's keep it small and then i can just keep growing the list until i find a place that's more comfortable for me uh the first place i went to was all pilgrims church on in broadway on capitol hill and that was a beautiful really really nice experience um i didn't it, i didn't really feel a click but i thought i could definitely check this out again i could rotate back to them and see how it goes uh, the next place I went to was Thompson Chapel in St. Mark's. Uh, I did not know what the Episcopal Church was. I couldn't accurately tell you what the Anglican Communion was. Um, but I, in my research, St. Mark's had come up as a place which was forward-moving, progressive, inclusive, whatever. Uh, I went to my first service at Thompson Chapel. It was 7 p.m., in uh, early November 2015, and I remember being amazed that there were, there were only maybe 10 or 15 people, if that, at that service. But it still felt like such a warm, intimate space. And I'm sure many of the people listening to this can imagine Thompson Chapel at you know at 7 p.m. in the dead of fall when the world outside is so dark and so cold, but you walk in through those big doors and there's light and there's warmth and there's community right there. And I think Rich Wiles was uh, presiding at that first. And No, it was Rich Wiles for sure uh, before he moved on to St. Andrews in Green Lake. And um, I knew I had to try this again. I had other churches to check on the list, but I thought I can go to those on a Sunday morning and still try this St. Mark's thing out on... um, Sunday evening and so I returned the following week and it was uh, Reverend Jennifer King Doherty was preaching and I've shared the story before but I will share it one more time and then we'll move on that second Sunday at St. Mark's was the Sunday after the Paris attacks in November 2015 there was a series of coordinated terrorist attacks across the city of Paris which killed over 100 people So I remember going to that service at St. Mark's, and I think it was heavy on people's minds. Reverend Jennifer King Doherty was preaching that day. And I forget exactly what she said, but she said something like, "Even because we are Episcopalians, as Episcopalians, we don't give into the fear of that. We don't give into the anger, the, the hurt. We feel it, we can hold it, but we believe in something that calls us over it to unite to heal the bond. And again, I that was my second week there. I did not know what an Episcopalian was, but I still felt part of it. She didn't she probably didn't know me from Jack, but to feel like I was still included in that, that my own concern and my own fear uh, was being held in that community. Uh, that was huge for me. And then I think the next week, I made the decision to go for an 11 a.m. service to, to really engage and see what it was all about. And I remember creeping into the back pew because I'd never been in the nave before. And so I'm being amazed at this huge open space and all these people there. And I did not want to be noticeable at all. So I remember creeping into the back pew and then Earl Grout came over and said, Hey, you're new here, aren't you? You'll here later five years. All, yeah. Five years recording a podcast about race. There's been a lot that's happened in those five years. Oh, it has overwhelmingly been an amazing communal and spiritual experience. And that's why I want to keep doing it. I want to keep being a part of it.
0: That's very nice. I just realized that the entire time you've lived in the United States has been our time of increasing nationalism, actually, cause that, that really was kicked off with nine 11 and, you know, like I'm proud to be an American and all, all that sort of the noise. And, um, but wow.
1: I mean, I I remember after nine 11, I was still, I was still living in Dubai at the time, but. Mm. The Bush administration had imposed restrictions on student visas from people in Middle Eastern countries, uh, yeah. regardless of where they were from originally. And obviously, mm-hmm. Dubai, you know, is in the Middle East. So, for about uh, so, I was planning on going to school in Massachusetts in fall of twenty of two thousand and two. Yeah fall 2002 but because of those restrictions i had to skip the semester and come here in well you know go to massachusetts in the spring of 2003 and so i went from dubai in the united arab Emirates in the middle east to new england in january <laughs> oh, no. oh, and they think no. this is snow
0: oh yeah i know that <laughs> wait till you don't see the ground for three months <laughs> That is snow.
1: <laughs> I remember my mind being blown that there was snow on the ground in March. I <laughs> think- <laughs>
0: yeah, I, I mean, again, like I, I went to school in New Jersey, which gets more snow than this area. Not as much as New England or Western Mass or Upstate New York, but but we digress. I would love to talk about names and more. I actually. I mean, again, I don't know if this is too much of a tangent either, if you'll want to include this, but it's um, in my American-centric head, Pereira and Sri Lanka are two different, because <laughs> <laughs> Pereira sounds more Iberian Peninsula and, or, you know, kind of Hispanic, but mm-hmm. I don't know. I literally just, I am woefully under undereducated on the history and the colonial history of, of kind of the subcontinent and the Um, I, I mean, maybe it's too much for this particular recording. And if you think that is, then we can, but I'm, I'm just, I'm so curious.
1: No, you, you hit it on the head when you said, when you mentioned the Iberian Peninsula, Pereira is originally from Portugal. And I think if you Mm -hmm. go to Portugal, you still might see people with, um, the local variant of that name. Uh, Mm -hmm. and I know if you go to India and Sri Lanka, because parts of those two countries, And in the case of Sri Lanka, the entire country for for a long time was colonized by Portuguese explorers. And so Mm. Pereira is an incredibly common uh, name in that part of the world, and especially in Sri Lanka. I discovered a long time ago that I think many of the people here in America and probably Canada, uh, many of those who have the last name Perry, P-E-R-R-Y, that is an anglicized form of the name Pereira. Uh, I do not know if it's, if it's from the same origins as Portugal or coming from the Indian subcontinent, but in, I'm not a genealogist, so I cannot speak for this <laughs> clearly. But Perry is, by and large, the Anglicized form of Pereira. Hi, and thank you for listening to this conversation between Kara Peterson and myself. If you would like to hear part two of our interview, just check out the St. Mark's website or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: That's so interesting. And like, I,